You're listening to Spartan Up Podcast. We're going to interview somebody every week from all over the world and see what they did in their life to become successful, no matter how they defined it. All right. Well, guys, welcome back to Spartan Up, the podcast. SpartanUpPodcast.com. In a cold, blustering, beautiful Pittsfield, Vermont, I have Joe DeSena, Johnny Wade, and Colonel Nye. With Dr. Us. Johnny. Uh, doctor, <laughs> do, the, the, Dr. The spiritual, Johnny. Our spiritual guru, Johnny Wade. <laughs> Um, so today with our good friend, can I say our, our redheaded sister of the Spartan world overseas, Dell, um, she has met up with a brilliant doctor, Dr. Van Telecamp. Thank you. Van Telecamp. I can't seem to get his name right. But, um, so anyways, we are sneaking into the Royal Society of Medicine and. But my, my big question is what is the Royal Society of Medicine? Well, I'm more familiar with the Royal Society of, of Horticulture, the, the Plant Royal Society over there. <laughs> and stay tuned for a future podcast but, uh, when Sephra and someone else break Colonel in there. I, I think Colonel and I might be more well-informed. No, I, I just assume it's a bunch of good good doctors doing good stuff yeah, over absolutely. there. And, uh, well, you know I, what? I'll, I'll bet we're going to find out we're if gonna we find this out. podcast. Yeah. Everything sounds fancier. <laughs> with that British with accent. With a British accent. <laughs> let's, let's go overseas. All right. Let's go overseas. Let's go overseas. Okay, so again, we're here with Spartan Up, and we are going to be chatting to a doctor who's done some phenomenal things. His name is Zand Van Tulliken. Zand, nice for you to spend some time with us at Spartan. Um, tell us your story. You went to Oxford University, is that right? Yeah. Qualified as a doctor, and you've not had a mainstream medical career by any means, have you? Yeah, I think my, my I don't know if you can really even call it a career. It's been, it has been very messy. I, I grew up in London and had a very nice, comfortable childhood that I found a bit boring and I would just read adventure books and adventure stories and I just wanted to be out in the world doing things and I think that was, I thought medicine would be a good ticket to do that and it does, does seem to have been. So I trained in tropical medicine um, and then as soon as I could I went with an NGO to Darfur and I wanted to see what was, I, I, did, I did want to make the world a better place and work for a vulnerable population but I think I was also very curious to live in an event which was in the headlines and see what it was really like doing that kind of work. And I think once you've done, once you've worked in a remote place doing medicine with very limited resources with a very vulnerable population, it's very hard then to go back to normal life and not want to keep doing something like that. Um, and that was, it was extreme in all kinds of ways. I mean, it was very difficult. I think that the hottest it got, it, it got to 55 degrees Celsius you know, on several days. And, and so mm. it was physically very difficult. And then emotionally, it was very difficult as well. The patients were having horrible things done to them. I mean, it was the middle of a genocide. And so that, that was the sort of formative yeah. medical experience. Yeah. And, um, I mean, weren't you frightened of going off into the middle of a genocide and living and working in that environment? Most people would be put off. I guess what I find very interesting about um, danger is that it Danger never feels very dangerous. Like we knew statistically that the odds of being kidnapped were extremely high. I mean, I've been I've worked in Darfur twice now, and um, uh, the last time I was there, there were only thirty expats in town, and they were kidnapping three people a month. So you can just sort of do the odds of how long you've got to stay before you get kidnapped. But of course, while you're there, it doesn't feel dangerous. It just feels boring. Like yeah, yeah. basically, you're under house arrest the whole time. You've got a curfew. You can't really go out. You just and so eventually something bad will happen and that will feel very terrifying but most of the time danger isn't until someone's shooting at you it doesn't it doesn't yeah. feel like it doesn't feel exciting and what was the worst thing you actually saw when you were out there um i think what was is a, a hallmark of 
conflicts, uh, violent conflict in general, but, but in sub-Saharan Africa particularly, is sexual violence. And that's something which you do see in hospitals in London. But I'd never seen any situation where every single female patient I'd seen had been raped, not just uh, you know once or twice through the course of their stay in a camp, but I would say most, many of the patients I saw were raped every single day, and that wasn't mm. their main complaint. And at that point, you can't, you can't really process that level of violence. You end, up hating, um, you end up hating huge groups of people and being angry permanently, mm. and that's, that's, um, that's not a very good situation to have a medical team in. Yeah. And of course, you're also very... Most of their needs are not medical at that point. I mean, you're dealing with a local crime where they've the rape victim mm-hmm. has committed a crime. So they they they've had sex outside of marriage. So they they can be um, they can be executed in Sudan. So you're dealing with a local crime and an international crime. You're dealing with a war crime. Um, you're dealing with local cultural problems where you really need to get them away from their family, who in many cases mm-hmm. want to have them killed and move them to another region. Um, as well as being their paediatrician, their infectious disease mm. doctor, their gynaecologist, their surgeon, and their psychiatrist, all in one go. And so you're not, and you're doing it all through an interpreter. So it wasn't, um, that, that was the worst medicine I've ever done. It was, it was, really, it was really unpleasant. Because what actually really motivates you to put your life at risk? Um, I, think, I think there are a very small number of situations where you can look at someone doing aid work and say they're a real hero. And I don't think that's the the case in Darfur. Darfur was an incredibly interesting and exciting place to work. We got lots of attention, lots of celebrities, lots of money. And um, I think the risks to my life were very low. There, there was not, the Islamic State weren't chopping anyone's head off or anything like that. There weren't any executions on the internet. Um, I think, for instance, working in the current Ebola epidemic is very different. I mean, that, that is not glamorous. It's really, really hard. And the risk to your life is quite is 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 substantially higher. So there are there's a small number of cases where I'd say those people are real heroes, but most of the time it's fun and it's really exciting. Yeah. And have have you always been gritty? Have you always been gritty and determined? No, I don't think. I think. I mean, uh, well, you'll know as well as me. Like, if you meet people who do difficult, interesting things, very often they're not gritty at all. Like, yeah. my experience is that doing hard things doesn't make you tougher. It just makes you not like doing hard things, like you know how bad it's going to be. The, the, the thing that you get out of doing hard things, I guess, is that you know that you can do very, very much more than you think you can. And so you get a bit of knowledge. But I've never found that I've got tougher. So whether it's, you know, high altitude mountaining in the Himalayas or whether it's um, long expeditions in the north of Canada or whether, whatever, whatever, work in the Arctic or for, wherever it is, I've just had that same feeling of like, oh, here we go, this is this is horrible and then knowing that you can get through something that's horrible because you've done it before but I wouldn't I'd say I'm more tough than brave but even then I'd say probably it's just that I know that I can do it but I don't enjoy it more than the next person I don't think Do do you think you're I think I'm incredibly tough. In fact, we've both broken into the Royal Society of Medicine today. Do you realise that? <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> we've is, actually that gate crashed the Royal Society We stormed the barricades. We stormed the barricades yeah. today. I'm always very interested in the idea of people who are gritty and tough because you see people who are CEOs doing days of work that just, to me, are you know 20-hour days just cranking them out on the aeroplanes all the time. And yet they don't have the self-discipline, for instance, to manage their weight. And so you can see plenty of yeah. hard-working fat CEOs True. and you think, wow, that's really strange. Or you can see people in incredible physical shape and they're bums and they do nothing. And I always think, oh, so you're, 
you're tougher than me in one respect. Both those groups of people are tougher than me in one respect, and yet there's some other bit of their life where they're not tough at all. They can't, res can't even resist a hamburger, or they can't be bothered to get a job. It's such a weird... So it's all, to me, it's all about motivation and why you would want to go and do a thing. True. And, and do you find that you, you keep yourself fit and healthy so that you can do these things? Yeah, but I, I need... Uh, I, I need a, I mean, I need a goal, so I, I have to have something that's coming up that will be horribly unpleasant if I'm not in good shape and if I haven't done that then I get out of shape like the, the day in the gym for me is not enjoyable just in and of itself and I live in New York which is a place obsessed with aesthetic and beauty and how you look yeah, and, absolutely. and also a group of people who just have this language about their bodies and how they feel and things and I I guess I don't really have that maybe because I'm English but I, I just I, I need a like it's going to be horrible running the London Marathon and if I don't train for that it's, oh, it's so it's much hurt. worse it's so That's much gonna worse hurt. That are suffering the gym and, and during the year. Yeah. Absolutely. And what other, what other projects have you got on at the minute? Every year I go to North Uganda to Gulu, which is a war zone until recently, and train doctors to function there in complex emergencies. And it's, it's really interesting to think then, th then you have to spend a great deal of time thinking what do you need to function in a, in a uh, hostile environment. And very little of that is actually how to be a good doctor. My assumption is that they, they all want to know how do I feed a starving child, how do I treat someone with malaria, and those things are relatively easy to learn. The thing that they are much worse at learning and much worse at understanding is the context in which you'll be doing that. And to me, the main barriers to doing a good job in a difficult environment are uncertainty and indecisiveness. So you need mm. to be able to make decisions and you need to know what the parameters of your uncertainty are. And so having a decent theoretical understanding of why people kill each other and why wars occur, mm. it's just not something you get taught at medical school and that's, that's what we spend time doing. And then we spend a great deal of time on evacuation procedures, security, international law, things like that. And so that, to me, every year, that brings me back to this weird bit of theory about endurance where it's quite book-based. Mm. And yet then, when I'm working in emergency... Uh, it's really useful to have read a bunch of political theory. It sounds really, it sounds really weird, but I, I think about it all the time and think the most important bit of equipment in an emergency very often is a copy of the Geneva Conventions and a book of poetry. Like That'll help you get your head around who these people are much more than your medical textbook. And you're actually part of probably the, the ultimate team, isn't it? You've got an identical twin yeah. brother. Is he the same as you? Is he similar? He's actually... It's very interesting. I, I mean, I was talking to him... Uh, just a, a few minutes before I arrived, and um, he does really, really difficult stuff. So he's done a huge amount of stuff in the Arctic. He passed Special Forces, select, so SAS selection last year. Um, and just the nature of his life has been, over the last couple of years, he's done much, much more endurance stuff than me. And it's really interesting. That's where I get my idea, I guess, that doing hard stuff doesn't make you harder, is that he's the same person as me. He'll go, we'll go through very different experiences and come back. And have have you go. grown up quite competitive, the two of you, being no. identical, or are you, just, are you supportive of each other or competitive? No, it's completely different. So, so if you're an identical twin, you're genetically, the, you obviously know this, but you're mm. genetically the same. And so you're an absolute idiot to compete with someone who's genetically the same as you because they're like another <laughs> version of you doing good in the world. Like if he, I don't know, if he wins a race, that's like me winning a race. You know, when he passes SAS selection, that's like me passing SAS selection. So it's, it, the only thing I get from my brother is, is inspiration to go, oh, okay, if he could do it, I could do it. That's Does a that brilliant, that's a brilliant yeah. way of looking at it. And you two both went off and did a TV show a long time ago, which... Um, 
was pretty hardcore, wasn't it? You went off into the wilderness and you were doing awful, awful things to yourselves. Yeah, we did, yeah. Um, that was, what was amazing about that bit of TV was it, there were two components that made it special. One was it had a very large budget, and so we could go to very, very remote places. And what we wanted to do was get to places where they had no access to Western medicine. So where did you go? So we went to Congo. Um, we went to Gabon and, and Congo to live with a group of nomadic um, Bayaka pygmies. Um, and they're a group of people, I mean, nomads now, nomads in the 21st century just don't fit in. I mean, we have a system of borders and states and all kinds of rules, and it just doesn't, it's hard to be a nomad. And this is one of the last groups of people doing transects of hundreds of miles across Africa. And um, if they're not leading a nomadic lifestyle, they're very abused. I mean, the pygmies have a really hard time. So we live with them. And we were taking, um, we were looking at their traditional medicine and doing that. Then we went to Peru and um, lived with a group of people who, were really isolated by the Shining Path terrorists in, in Peru in the, in the 80s and 90s. And so um, they had not seen any Westerners probably for 10, 15 years. Um, then we went to northern Russia to the Arctic and lived with a group of indigenous whale hunters. And then we went to... Um, yeah. What did um, you learn from them? What, so what, we went to see... The, there's a paradox in the Arctic where um, people live much longer than you'd expect, bearing in mind they live on meat and fat and don't have much access to fresh vegetables. Or light. Yeah, and, or light, <laughs> indeed. And, of course, the reality is they all commit suicide and they drink huge amounts of alcohol and they all smoke and they beat their wives and they drown in whaling accidents. You have to control for all of this to find this paradox. But it turns out that, actually, their rates of cardiovascular disease and strokes are much less than you'd think. And so you have this... But we, what we learned really was the strangeness, from all the places we learned about the strangeness of indigenous life and how little Western medicine per se has to offer and how much you have to learn from an indigenous group of people. So mm. we had this, but we had to do it all. So there was a moment in television where there'd been a bunch of fraudulent stuff and so we had to do it all properly. So we were sleeping on the forest floor with the fire ants crawling over us and all these things. And um, What was the worst thing you did? Um, taking the hallucinogenic drugs in, in Peru was very difficult because, um, I mean, that sounds like it would be quite fun, but hallucinogenic drugs, if you take them in London at a party where everyone's having a good time, are quite different to taking them in the middle of a, a forest where there's all the, the paranoia that they induce is amplified by the fact that you what, feel what you, you might worried get about the risk by. of taking something like you because you know what it's going to do to you. I don't think what's interesting about hallucinogenic drugs, I guess, is that they we've got a lot of data on them and they don't do you much harm. Like no one's ever really overdosed on LSD to the point where they've been incapacitated, not in the same way that you could on alcohol, for instance. So I think they're medically quite safe, but the experience was extremely terrifying because you're in a very remote location with a group of people you don't know very well who don't speak the language and you, you take it on trust, they know what they're doing. But they have been doing it for hundreds of years and it's quite an interesting bit of... The fact that they've invented this bit of pharmaceuticals is just extraordinary to me. Like It's, it's a very weird bit of biochemistry they've figured out. And your average doctor, your average guy, is not going to go off with their brother and go and take hallucinogenic drugs right. in the middle of nowhere for a camera crew. What... what what makes you do these things? What is it inside you that inspires you to do this? I, I guess, I guess some medicine, medical training is a process, and you, you, you know this as well as me, like medical training is a process that tries to convince you that you know the answers, right? And then you're put in a position where you're meant to have the answers. And I think, particularly in America, a lot of doctors go through life believing they do have the answers, but as soon as you twitch the curtain back a little bit, and I think we're better at it, I shouldn't say we're better at it in England, but maybe there's a mindset that's a bit more cynical in England. 
you just realise that a huge amount of it is bollocks and doctors don't know anything at all. Doctors don't know anything about... Medical training doesn't teach you anything about sport and movement, your body and nutrition and all these other... Let alone more spiritual aspects of life. And so I think both my brother and I felt like we didn't really know anything about how the world worked or what would happen if you took away Western medicine. And that, that was, the, was just this sort of curiosity to say, how do, how do people live without medicine? And the answer is they live quite well. I mean, the main threat to the pygmies is, um, is modern life. Like, if you can do one thing for indigenous people, it's give them land rights and leave them alone. Yeah. You know what? Burby break. Burby break. break. <laughs> one, three. <laughs> or none. <laughs> I hope you're not sitting still while you listen. If you are, you better get a burpee break in. I think both my brother and I felt like we didn't really know anything about how the world worked or what would happen if you took away Western medicine. And that, that was, the, was just this sort of curiosity to say how to... How do people live without medicine? And the answer is they live quite well. I mean, the main threat to the pygmies is, um, is modern life. Like, if you can do one thing for indigenous people, it's give them land rights and leave them alone. Yeah. Um, it seems like modern life is, is, is a threat to all of us with obesity and... Well, this is what Spartan's all about, right? Is saying, Absolutely. wouldn't it be better to be like Laura Ingalls Wilder hacking your way across the wilderness or something like just that endurance should be a part of everyday life. And yeah. I think that's... I don't know, that the happiest I've ever been is when I'm doing difficult things and the easy life. I have a, now a job which is potentially extremely easy. I'm an academic in New York. And so at any given day, I'm paid a decent wage and can eat whatever I want and live in an air-conditioned house. And it's all very nice. And you have to go and seek out these difficult things. And it's always amazing to me that these horribly unpleasant things make you happy. Yeah. Is this not... So what do you seek out? What is your average day like? Um... Well, it depends on where... I mean, it completely depends on where I am. So my average day... I think... I mean, there are people who just seek it out every single day. And um, I don't know if I do that. Maybe intellectually I try and do that. Like, I do try and not ever be comfortable with what I know or my little stupid idea about the world. Like, I try and unpick that every day. Physically in New York... I mean, I train every day, but... How do you train? There's no danger. I mean, running or gym or circuits or those kind of things. So the kind of training where you want to be sick and you think you can't do any more. Yeah. And I find that very hard to do alone. So I, I have a trainer that I work with or I'll do it with my... I'll, I have another brother that lives in New York who I'll train with or a couple of friends. But you want to be doing... I, I think for me, training which feels like by the time you get to the fifth set of reps or the number 10, you just think, well, not only can I not do this, but were I to do it, I might die. And that, I think, is probably quite... And then you finish and you go, <laughs> oh, I probably could have done it a bit harder, you know. It probably wasn't that bad. So have you ever failed at anything? Yeah, I think I, think I probably... Um, I think I fail at things every single day. I, I don't think the big things, like trying to... Uh, I was trying to climb Choyu, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world, I think. It was one of the highest. And yeah, big, um, big I didn't mountain. get to the top, but I didn't think that was a failure because I, I, I couldn't speak by the time I was moved down the hill. So that, that doesn't feel like failure in that way. But I think every day just crapping things up and being late and missing emails, and stuff, that's, those to me are the fate. Those things are really, really hard to do because 
you're not on a team, you haven't set goals, it's just the basic administration of life. And those are the things I really beat myself up about. I think much more than the physical challenges. Once I'm, once I'm in the gym or on the bike or on the path, I, I, don't, I, I want to give up, but I usually don't. I find that okay. But the multitasking, like just trying to run my life, Mm. It's a fucking mess, and that—that that to me is the failure. Is is that you can't, you can't quite be the complete adult person and really have all your shit together. But it, you know, if you do enough adventurous stuff, it looks like you do. It and people good. go, oh, he's probably tough enough to get up at six a.m. and answer a bunch of emails, and you go, yeah. Have you ever learned anything from failing? Yeah, I'd say the the things where the, things have gone badly wrong, um, it's always about um, it's the indecisiveness and the, um, the uncertainty. And you can shrink those before you do, what it, whether it's climbing a mountain or running a race, you can shrink those two things. And if you're not, I mean, it's such an, you know, it's the Boy Scouts, isn't it? It's just be prepared. But I think you cannot be too anal or too obsessive about what you're doing. And, and the times when I failed, I've just gone, yeah, this will probably be like last time, it'll be fine. Mm. And it, it never is then. But there's a there's a great, I read lots of social theory, which we should do more in medical school. And so there's a guy called, this will sound really boring, but there's, but I, I think it's really interesting. So this guy called Robert Merton, who's a social theorist, and he wrote a paper called The Unanticipated Consequences of Purposive Social Action. Wrote it in 1938. Um, and it's basically a paper, 40 page paper about why shit goes wrong. And if you read that paper, what you realize is it's not a law of unintended consequences, like things might go wrong. Mm. It's that things will definitely always go wrong. They have to, that there will always, be something that you couldn't anticipate because the future is different to the past and I find that I, of all the things I've ever read this not obscure but I mean it's some boring bit of social theory from the 19th that you just go yeah he actually really nailed it and if you apply that to your mountaineering or your canoe trip or your mm. you know work in Syria whatever it might be <laughs> fantastic well, thank you so much for your time and uh, we're going to have some trouble actually getting out of this building now I think it's alright we're going to we're going to break we go out through the air ducts like That's Bruce it. Willis right oh yeah we could try the that. elevator shaft we'll get on the roof let's do it they might have snipers <laughs> on the roof alright let's go <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say that's one of the more interesting ones I've seen just in terms of uh, the situation somebody's putting themselves into. Uh, some really unique spots that guy's been. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would do it. I don't know, how to, I mean, you, you fly right into uh, gunfire. Gunfire. Yeah, well, let's say soldiers. Fire. <laughs> you know, service members fly into gunfire. It's been a long time since I, I've done any of that. Um, yeah, I mean, whether you're a soldier or, or whether you're a doctor or maybe a, a media, a, a news war correspondent, you know, there's always going to be those people that, you know, they're not doing it for excitement. Or they're doing it for the greater good. Mm -hmm. So whatever it, whatever it is, whatever that challenge or that good is, you know, there's a handful of these doctors that will go around the world and uh, help the indigenous people, help the oppressed people, you know, the doctors without borders, doctors, the, the individual people. I know there's other organizations. You know, they're, they're to be commended and, 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 and uh, respected. And uh, to learn a lot from the indigenous and, yeah. people as well. I mean, they're, they're leaving a lot behind. They're putting themselves in, in great danger, mm -hmm. um, physical danger, as well as they could get sick. Mm -hmm. They could get the diseases. Uh, you know, they, they deal with a lot of people who uh, they cross borders uh, that are hostile at times. So it's uh, they're they're interesting people. And, uh, Reminds me of um, Al, was it Al Pacino and a few good men? You need me. 
Meet me on that wall. Yeah, it's Jack, Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah, Jack Nicholson, right? <laughs> Pacino, <laughs> Nicholson, yeah. same, same yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, well, the thing that I found was really fascinating is he talks a lot about when you're preparing these doctors to be in those types of uh, war situations, right? It's not just their their medical training, but it's also their mental, the, the mental training that has to go into when your baseline is shifted like that, when you're around, you know, uh, lots of wounded or... Um, you know, people who have passed away and things like that. My, my brother talks about when he's done disaster relief in uh, the Philippines and Haiti, you know, it's just like your frame of reference is completely switched at that point. You, it becomes your new normal that you see, you know, bodies around and things like that. So I think a lot of times when you think about what these doctors are doing, it's that PTSD thing that you talk about. It's, a, it's, it's, it's huge training, not just with your skills, but just with your mind. Right? It's so. interesting when uh, he was asked if, if you think this makes you tougher and he said, no, but you find out you can do a lot more than you ever thought you could, mm-hmm. which ultimately makes you tougher. That's a frame of reference change. I yeah. mean, that's why we put people under barbed wire and make them yeah. climb walls and deal with stuff they don't like because um, we're all at this baseline, right? We've got to get them here yeah. so they can live in the middle. Yeah, and it's also interesting when you look at uh, what's relative and you know, people will avoid um, traffic. They'll avoid anything because it makes them uncomfortable. And then you look at what these people go through and the discomfort they put themselves in and as he talks about the adjustment when you come back to the real world I know coming back from your death races it takes me a long time to adjust to the real world I can't go to a dinner party because the people just drive me crazy because it isn't the intensity that I'm used to sure I can only imagine well and the same thing when you come back from well, the war zone well, right? think about it he's coming back you're right you know everything he sees and does on a daily basis he comes back and he's sitting down to a normal dinner mm-hmm. you know having a you know with just the niceties of being in a restaurant with tablecloths mm-hmm. and the rest of it you well, know, that's a normal server, for the how is first that's world. so different from what he's left behind and mm-hmm. um i worked with uh, sergeant major sergeant major uh, ferris and uh, he talked about that that he would come back from combat and he was having some trouble with his family and i don't mind saying this on film because he has we actually got mad at his daughters who were were concerned about i think it was american idol was on that night or something yeah. and yet he knew the mission that was going to take place in Afghanistan that night because he was still connected to it and that's where his mind still was I mean it's still back there even though he's supposed to make the transition mm-hmm. to be home and it's just hard and I imagine these doctors and again media guys go through the exact same things why did they um, I think I know the answer why did I go right back in uh, right you, you, you see that in the military a lot yeah. right they come out they're back they're safe they're home they're with the wife they want to head right back in yeah I think it's that well, there's many reasons, I think, but one is because you've left, you have your family at home, yeah. and you, you see how good they're living, comparatively. You've got your friends, your, your, your team, your buddies, your brothers in arms, whatever, back there as well, and they're all doing something. You want to do it as well. You want to you you do your share of rowing the boat, essentially. Mm-hmm. You, know? you feel bad if they're, they're doing something and you got out of it. So you, it's, yeah. it goes back to re- shared responsibility. You know, and it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a doctor. It's probably it, the same thing applies here, right? Uh, it's important work, right? And the thing is, so much of what we do day to day is not important. It, it doesn't have that el- that level, that intensity. And and like you say, you know, this is your family too. And when he goes into these situations, he's working with these people, they become family. And so you don't want to leave them behind. You're exactly right. I think um, I think I think it's all relative, though, too. Though I think I think a lot of it, just like you said, when you come back from the death race, there's that there's that hard time relating, right? Yeah. And so I think. When you're in situations like that where, you know, in this country you say we do deal with first world problems, you're saying like the traffic, the, the all those examples that you always say, you know, it just it just all seems so irrelevant and inane, right? That you, that you well, I, yeah. I have kind of a, a light story I want to tell you along those lines. Uh, I was just at a, at a paddleboard race with Kevin Lowe, Darren Ingram, a bunch of the Loris Fett, a bunch of people that you know from the death race, really incredibly cool people. 
And as we were wrapping up a couple of these days, I said, I love you guys. I mean, first of all, you're amazing people, but I think I realized, second of all, it's because every time I see you, we're doing something so intense and, yeah. and so powerful. It's amazing. And, and Kevin looked at me and goes, yeah, and that is exactly why you're never allowed to come to my work on a Tuesday. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Because yeah. the, the world yeah. happens here. And, sure. and these guys are in situations that, ha- and women that happen up here. Sure. You know, it's, I've always been amazed. When do you bond with somebody? You mm-hmm. bond when you're tested. Yeah. You know, I, throughout my career, it happens to everybody. Somebody come up and say, oh, you know, do you remember we were at some place? No, I don't. And then other guys I would see, I know immediately because we were in ranger school together mm-hmm. or we were in combat together or whatever. When those times where it is hard and you have to, there's a shared bond and shared sacrifice, those times, and you remember those forever yeah, and you sure. become yeah. part of that team. The rest of it is just kind of. That's like what he says, you know, difficult, difficult times is when he's happiness. And and, and to to translate that to the average person, because I mean, most people watching this podcast are not infectious doctors. They're not uh, soldiers, right? And I really believe, and I know that this is part of what you're doing with Spartan, and I also know that we've got to wrap this up, so I'll say this quick. It's really important to put ourselves in situations that challenge us, that stretch us, that make us grow, that really bust us out of our comfort zone, and doing it with a group of people is even better, because like you say, those are the people you're going to remember the rest of your life. So, SpartanUpPodcast.com. Correct. 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 And, uh, Colonel Nye's got his interactive sex- session. And, uh, thank <laughs> you, Del. Del. Yeah. Thanks, Del. We Del. love no, you. Was, I mean, she put herself and, uh, um, in, in well, right, right well, in next harm's time, way to go yeah. do this. Well, Del, next time, let's sneak into the Royal Horticultural Society. For show notes, video, and audio of this episode, visit SpartanUpPodcast.com backslash 066 or follow us on Twitter at SpartanUpPod. The SpartanUp Podcast is brought to you by Spartan. To find a race near you, visit Spartan.com.